Thank you, John. And thank you, brothers and sisters at Maranatha. So it is a joy for me to be here with you. Now listen, I know you didn't pick me, but just remember, I didn't pick you either. So, no, I, I'm so thankful. And I have gotten to know Pastor Michael since he got into town. I was able to get lunch with him not long after he arrived here in New Jersey and uh, have been uh, praying for you guys through the transition uh, with uh, welcoming him on board. He's been here over a year now, right? I think I've got that right. So, so thankful for that. And um, he's, he's not at Green Pond. He's in Brooklyn, you know, other, uh, another pastor's at Green Pond. And pastors are like picky about their pulpits, you know, like protecting them. So it's a little weird uh, to share the pulpit with somebody else. And I know it's weird for you to share the pulpit um, with me, but I can at least offer you this. Of course, I bring greetings from the saints at Green Pond. And I can assure you that the success of the church at large and the success of your church, the spiritual growth and prosperity that you will experience in the gospel is not based on a man, but it's based on the Spirit of God using the Word of God. And you are blessed with a community that is centered on the Word of God. So you have what you need. And God has graciously provided that for you. So I am uh, thrilled to be with you, and I do count it a privilege to be with you. Uh, so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to find your way to Revelation chapter 3. And you're like, we're going through Zechariah. Isn't that enough? <laughs> like, we're going now to Revelation. Uh, so be it. You know, it is what it is. So uh, Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at the last um, letter in the seven letters to the seven churches there in Revelation chapter 3, picking up verses 14 down to 22. And the reason why we're doing this is because that's what we're going through at Green Pond, so you just get a little flavor of where we are. But I do think it also connects nicely with uh, Zechariah, especially the visions of Zechariah that you're right in the middle of, and just to see the connection between uh, the, the pastoral concern from the prophet to the people in the midst of trying and difficult times. And so the circumstances of the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem that you are reading about in Zechariah are very similar to the circumstances of the early church that John was writing to, that they faced challenging circumstances, difficulties in their culture. And so uh, there's a connection here. So I think it's a, a nice way to maybe complement what you're going through there in Zechariah. So uh, this is Revelation 3. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage for us, and then we'll, we'll pray and get to it. So this is uh, the Word of God starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint to your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, once again, we humble ourselves before you this morning and we ask for you to work through your word. 
Lord, I, I confess that uh, with so many gathered together, there are uh, many different situations that we are going through, different challenges that we are facing. And yet we have this common basis of need from you. Lord, that we all need you this morning. We confess that. And we ask that you would be at work in us. Lord, I pray that we would be ready with tender hearts to hear what you have to teach us from this passage of Scripture. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would convict us of our sin and would comfort us with the truths of the Gospel. And Lord, we pray that as we are changed through your Spirit using your Word, that you would be glorified. And we ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I was ministering uh, on a missions trip once many years ago in uh, New Zealand, and one of the folks we were with shared a proverb that they have in New Zealand. I don't think it originated in New Zealand, but it was a proverb, and, and the proverb goes like this, the tallest blade of grass gets cut first. You ever heard anything like that? The tallest blade of grass gets cut first. Now, I don't know if you can tell from me standing up here, but I've never been the tallest kid in school, okay? And I really, that proverb resonated with me. All you tall people, you do deserve to be judged. Okay, no, that's not the point. Uh, the, the point of the proverb was pretty simple. The, the point of the proverb is you don't want to stand out too much. You, you don't want to be the one, that, like the weird one, the, the one that's always you know, noticeable, the one that's always making a scene because you're the one that's going to have the target on your back. I think that's the origin of the proverb. That's the point of it. And sometimes I think we might be tempted to approach our Christian witness, right, our, our living as followers of Jesus in our community, we might approach that kind of like that proverb. Like, I want to be about Jesus, just not too much. I want to be about Jesus, but I don't want to be like, you know, you know, like to stand out, to be sticking out like a sore thumb. Here's the reality. There's no such thing in our culture as a camouflage Christian. We can't follow Jesus and not be noticed. It's actually impossible. And yet the temptation is there. I think uh, one of Satan's oldest deceptions and he, as he attacks the church is to convince us that, you know what, you can, you can be into Jesus kind of. And I think often he, he clothes or, or, or uh, disguises unbelief with Christian trappings. You can be at a gathering of believers and not be a follower of Jesus. In fact, you could come regularly to a gathering of believers and not follow Jesus. You can wear a Christian t-shirt and not follow Jesus. You can listen to Christian music and not follow Jesus. And one of Satan's, I think, attempts here at our culture is to make the church just look like, sound like, and even act like the world. So there's no, no discernment, no, no distinction to the church. We don't stand out. I don't know if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters, where he pretends to be a demon giving advice to another demon. It's a very uplifting read, believe it or not. But one of the things he, he said is, you think one demon counseling another, the one demon says, the fine flower of unholiness can, can grow only in the close neighborhood of the holy. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the church. One demon counseling another saying, you know, you're going to be most effective right around the church right around in the proximity of Christianity. So I wonder this morning, how are we doing? Are we distinct? Are we shining as lights in our culture? Or are we too camouflage? How do we end up 
you know, pursuing being a camouflage Christian? Well, it's because of the pressure of culture around us. And that pressure is immense. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that that pressure is pushing hard on us. That is not new. Okay, It's been that way since the beginning of the church. And as we'll see here in Revelation 3, that's why Jesus needs to speak to the church at Laodicea. But you and I need to acknowledge that in our culture, we face significant pressure to accommodate our Christianity to what the majority belief is in our nation, to the, to the worldview of our culture. One example of this I thought of historically was that back in the 1970s, and some of us are old enough to remember the 70s, some of us not so much, uh, but there was a, a movement that happened in the midst of, of Christianity, and I'll put Christianity in quotes there, just kind of the, the more broad definition of Christianity, uh, about the song Amazing Grace. So you know the song Amazing Grace. We've all sung it a thousand, a million times. Um, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, what's that word, wretch like me? In the 70s, some churches, and I cannot speak to their motives, but some churches, some music leaders, some pastors and elders, they thought, you know what, that word wretch, it's a harsh word. And you know, those were the days when the self-esteem movement was really picking up steam, and it was like everybody's got to think really highly of themselves. And so they changed the words. Some said that that saved a soul like me, or that saved and strengthened me. Now, those are true lines, of course, but the desire to change the lyric betrayed the fact that cultural pressure, right, was, was being applied to the church, and within the church, people were saying, I just don't know, maybe we can edit this word. Now, songs aren't inspired, okay? Although my friend Johnny Newton, who wrote that one, okay, I mean, he's the real deal, all right, so just be careful there. But songs aren't inspired. You can change the lyric of a song, so be it. But what does that betray? It shows that there was pressure from the culture for the church to conform and to make itself fit in better. Use our analogy this morning to just be a little bit more camouflage. Again, this is not a new temptation. And so we come to the letter from Jesus to the church at Laodicea, which is in many ways the harshest letter here in these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. And what Jesus has to say here applied specifically to them, but it also applies to us. And we'll see that actually, I think, in, in, uh, in, growing, um, in the growing hostility of our culture to the church, we will need this letter even more. So let's unpack it and see what the Lord has for us here in these verses. We'll start off with verse 14. And this is Jesus speaking to John, John recording it, of course, to the Spirit. But he, he says, and to the angel or, or the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, what? The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now let's pause there. So if, we'd, if you'd been running with us through Revelation 2 and 3, you'd realize or remember that every one of these letters that Jesus gives to the churches, he starts off by identifying an aspect of his character. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus reveals himself to John. It's a glorious revelation, and Jesus highlights some aspects of his character, his sovereignty, his glory, his grace, and so he puts that on display visually for John to see. And one of the things that Jesus says about himself in chapter 1 is that he is the faithful and true one. And so that's chapter 1, verse 5. Well, here in verse 14, writing to the church at Laodicea, uh, Jesus says, highlight this. He says, tell them the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So let's just talk about what those titles or what those aspects of Jesus' character reveal. The first title there, the Amen, is unique in the New Testament. You won't find that phrase ever used in the New Testament of Jesus anywhere else. You will find something similar in Isaiah 65, 
uh, talking about God being the one who is trustworthy and reliable, and his word is the final word. And so when we see here Jesus referring to himself as the Amen, he's, he's basically, you know, keying into or tapping into some of that information in Isaiah 65, that his word is the final word. He is the trustworthy one. In the midst of all the, the drama that's going on around us, he is steadfast and reliable. So he can be called the Amen. He goes on, though. He says, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Well, how is Jesus the faithful and true witness? Well, not only did he take on flesh, right, and become a servant and walk amongst us on earth, not only did he teach and preach the good news of the gospel, not only did he heal those who were sick, and not only did he raise the dead, but he himself testified to his own glory by walking the road to the cross. He was the faithful witness unto the end. Never tapping out. Never saying it's too much. Even in that moment in the garden when he acknowledged the eternal difficulty of what he was doing, saying to the Father, not my will but yours be done. So Jesus has been through it. He's been through some cultural opposition. And I'll tell you what, if there ever was a blade of grass that stood above the others, it was Jesus. Drawing attention to himself because of his distinctly holy living, as we sang, his holy, holy, holy character. And so he's the faithful and true witness who not only went to the cross and died, but rose from the dead. So there's a hint of victory there, that it's not, there's not, it's not a loss for Jesus to have gone to the cross. He's victorious. And furthermore, at the end of verse 14, note it there in your Bible, he's the beginning of God's creation. We want to be very careful here. Uh, he is not saying that he is a created being. Some translations will say he is the originator of God's creation. That's a helpful translation of this term. He is the source of creation. If you go back to John 1, if you go back to Hebrews 1, if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, you find the, the, the teaching clearly in the Bible that Jesus as the second person of the Trinity was the one who initiated the act of creation and who did that creating work. All things came into being by him and through him is the idea. So he is the originator of God's creation. He started it all. It belongs to him. And so here it's a statement of his, not just the fact that he is the creator, but therefore his sovereignty over it, right? And when he's writing to a church that's trying to figure out how do I relate to my neighbors? How do I relate to my, my friends at school? How do, how do I relate to the coworkers, right? How do I relate to the political scene? Right? He's encouraging them. He's saying, just don't forget that when push comes to shove, I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. And I'm the one that created it all. And so if you're going to be loyal to someone, if you're, going to, if you're going to stake your life, if you're going to stake your eternal life on anything or anyone, it says you should stake it on me. You see, Jesus' steadfast character enables us to stand out in our culture. I want to call you this morning to stand out, but not just to stand out for the sake of standing out. We all know those people. They're just weird to be weird, Right? There's no, there's no godliness in that. <laughs> but we're called to stand out. Why? Because of Jesus' steadfast character. Because he is the amen, we have a firm foundation right, on which we can then stand as witnesses in, in our culture, in our world. 
There's, it's not a mistake that every letter starts with Jesus pointing to himself and saying, just don't, remember, or don't forget, this is who I am. I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of God's creation, the originator. And so you can stand out because I am steadfast. Maybe you need that encouragement this morning that Jesus is indeed God, that he is the, the true reliable one. And we should probably acknowledge here that cultures, which, which again, influence us and put pressure on us. And by the way, we can talk in, in terms of macro culture, like the way the United States puts pressure on you, or Western culture puts pressure on us. Or we could talk in micro cultures, like Fort Lee puts pressure on you. I don't know how that is. But you know, like there, there's a situation where your local community or your local school, your local workplace, your family environment that puts pressure on you. And guess what though? Cultures are fickle. And although they have long-standing traditions on the one hand, they're always changing. They will move the goalposts on you. Have you ever had that happen? Where they change the rules of engagement? They change what words mean, and all of a sudden what you thought you could bank on, you can't bank on anymore? Jesus says, I'm the amen. I'm the reliable one. He's not going anywhere. He's never fickle. We also, I think, learn here in just verse 14 that his revelation, his word is trustworthy because he's the faithful witness. And his word is validated by his walking on the same cross. He brings that up. You know why? Because in the first century, and Laodicea is in modern-day Turkey, so it's Asia Minor, in the first century, this time frame, um, persecution would ebb and flow. It wasn't universal in the Roman Empire, but in certain towns, at certain places, it could get... It could get a little dicey being a follower of Jesus. The Roman Empire was still figuring out what's their official line on Christianity. In some towns, Christians were imprisoned. In some towns, even some of the other letters here in Revelation 2 and 3, some of the believers in those towns, they were executed. In Laodicea, there would have been pressure. We don't know how much pressure, but Jesus says, I'm the faithful and true witness. I went to the cross, and it wasn't a loss. It was a win. And so you may be required in following Jesus to walk a hard road. We may be required as followers of Jesus to stand out and to face a little bit of ridicule, maybe some social awkwardness, maybe uh, an uncomfortable conversation around the water cooler at work, maybe, maybe some drama with the family. But Jesus says, I'm the faithful witness, follow me on this road. Because even if it ends up in what we would fathom as the worst possible case scenario, imprisonment, torture, death, if you're a follower of Jesus, he walked that road and he was victorious. And this, actually, the book of Revelation is, is designed to prepare the church to walk down that hard road. Now, most likely for us, it's not going to be that hard, but it's still going to be difficult. And so we need to acknowledge that. Jesus' steadfast character enables us to stand out. Maybe finally, just on verse 14, Jesus' authority is absolute because he's the creator. So his word is what matters most. And I'd love to tell you that every day I wake up thinking, okay, Jesus, your word matters most, your opinion matters most, your calling matters most, but my default setting because of sin, and I'm sure it is the same with you, is that when I wake up in the morning, it is my word that matters most to me. It's my opinion that matters most to me. Or maybe it's the opinion of my coworker or of my friend or of my parents or what, you know, my boss, right? And so it's just important for us, I think, to center ourselves on a regular, even daily basis to say, today, it is the word of Jesus that matters most to me. 
because creation is his. And that includes your school, your workplace, your church, includes your family. You belong to him. We exist under his sovereign reign. And so, okay, Jesus, what do you have to say? So what does he have to say to the church at Laodicea and even to us? Verse 15, as we continue on here in chapter 3, he says to them, I know your works. And I said that a lot in these letters. I'm aware of your situation, right? That's the idea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, and would that you were either cold or hot. Now, on the off chance that you haven't visited Laodicea, all right, let me just clue you in on a couple uh, historical features of the town, all right? Laodicea is a part of the infamous Tri-City area there in its, uh, in its uh, corner of Asia Minor. Laodicea was one city. Colossae was the other city, which you'll note from the, the book of the Bible, it's called Colossians, right? Written to the church at Colossae. That, that was a close-by town. The other town was, anybody know? Bonus points if you know. Johnny, you got it? Herapolis is the name of this town. Okay, Herapolis. Now, here's the deal. You would go to Colossae, and you know what you could get at Colossae? You could get cold water. You know what? Cold water is a blessing on a hot day. Can I get an amen? amen. Do you believe that? I remember had, Summer will be here before you know it. It's going to be 68 degrees today, praise the Lord. I don't know if it's gray. It's going to be 68 degrees. So, you know, on a, on a hot day, cold water is a blessing, right? So cold water is good. Cold water is good. In Herapolis, they had hot springs, the hot tub town, right? And so people would go to the hot springs for treatment, medical treatment. They would even, it literally existed in the first century, there was an aqueduct that brought hot water from Herapolis to, guess what, the town of Laodicea. But the problem was the water started hot in Herapolis, but by the time it snaked its way to the neighboring town of Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore, it was lukewarm. And so the lukewarm water was, as we say in the business, bueno para nada, Okay. It was good for nothing, okay? The, the lukewarm water, it wasn't hot enough to be of benefit medically. It wasn't hot enough to use in cooking or anything like that, so you didn't have the benefit there. And it wasn't cold enough to drink and to be refreshing on a hot day. The lukewarm water was just blah, right? And so Jesus uses an image that they would very much understand. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, it's not hot as positive and cold as negative. It's cold would be positive and hot would be positive. But both of those are what he wants from them. Distinction from the world, as we'll see that that is reflected in passion for the Lord. But he says, instead, you're lukewarm. And then I, he goes, I wish, I wish you were hot or cold. I, I wish you were passionate for me. But you're not. Verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Other translations, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is, this is a sobering verse because Jesus is saying, hold on a second, Laodicea. You need to know that just because you're gathered with the saints doesn't mean you're a follower of me. If, if you're gathered with the saints and your life does not bear distinction as a Christian, if you're gathering with the saints but you don't look any different than anybody else in the Roman Empire... Jesus says, you do not belong to me. And that's what that image of him spitting them out means. It means you do not belong to me. And so he's confronting veiled unbelief. He's also confronting Christians, genuine believers, who might be leaning that way, who are giving into that temptation. And so there's kind of two applications here. But he says, if you're lukewarm, you're not, you're not, you don't belong to me, and I'll spit you out of my mouth. He goes on in verse 17 
to clarify what this lukewarmness looks like. He says, let me break it down for you. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That sounds pretty arrogant. What does that look like? Well, let me explain it to you, okay? So again, first century uh, Roman Empire circumstances. In these little towns, and some of the medium-sized towns, Laodicea, medium-sized. Okay, so in these towns, they had um, favorite gods and goddesses from the Greco-Roman pantheon that they would worship, right? And the way it worked is uh, all the lawyers, at, well, let's do Laodicea. All the bankers, there was a big banking industry in Laodicea. All the bankers had their favorite god, and there was a temple, a shrine there in Laodicea to that god, and they would all go and worship, okay? And if you worked at the bank, you were expected to what? Be at those worship services. Because it was, inter, it was uh, they're called worship guilds. It was a trade guild, so it was all intertwined, the, re the religion and the career, Okay? There was also a big uh, textile industry in Laodicea, uh, dyeing of, of clothes. And so um, there was a particular god or goddess over that industry. And so they had a different temple. But if you worked there, if that was your family business, if that was your, your, where you were uh, employed, then you were expected to go to those worship services and offer sacrifices to that god or goddess. And if, uh, and if you were in, there was another, there's a big medical school in Laodicea. We know this uh, from archaeology. So there's a big medical school there. So if you were in the medical school, of course, there were specific gods and goddesses related to the medical profession. So you would go and you would worship and offer sacrifices and all that. That's what you were expected. Now, this is what was happening, okay? Here's what was going on. People in Laodicea had heard the gospel. They had responded to the message. But somebody was telling them, here's the deal. You can worship Jesus and just, you can go to the service at the local guild temple, go to the banking god worship service, go to the textile goddess worship service, go to the, you know, the, the medical school, go and, you can go and just keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> you know, mind you, but you familiar with that? It means it doesn't count. Okay, if anybody's ever doing this, don't trust them. Okay, that means it doesn't count. That's, I learned that in third grade. Anyway, so... That was what they were saying. Like, you can, just go, you can just go along with the gods of your culture. And if, if you were a believer in Laodicea and you did that, guess what? You kept your job. Maybe you got the promotion. Maybe you got a better grade on the test in medical school. As, as, long, as, you just, as long as you didn't stand out. Because you know who stands out? The banker who won't go and worship the pagan god of banking. You know who stands out? The person who's working in textiles who won't go and worship the goddess of the, the textiles. The one in the medical school who says there's only one originator of the universe. And it's not in the Greco-Roman pantheon. See, that's going to call attention to you. That might mean you don't get the promotion. That might mean you don't get as good of a grade on the test. And in many cases, it meant you lose your job. So the Laodiceans were compromising. They were, they were participating in some of this worship. And so guess what? They were wealthier than the other Christians in the area because of their compromise. So Jesus says, let me tell you about being lukewarm. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. This is like a 2,000-year-old prosperity gospel where they were thinking, look at our bank accounts. I got the promotion. Jesus must be blessing me. He must be okay with me going to worship at the banking God or the, you know, making these compromises. And brothers and sisters, we're not tempted to, to worship in actual literal temples in our culture. That's not how it works. But we are, make no mistake, we are tempted to worship the gods and goddesses of our culture. Money, 
popularity, power and influence, right? These are the gods of our culture. And it's, you know, they're presented differently, but it's all the same. Appearance, how we look, right? All these, these gods, and we are called to bow to those gods and goddesses. And if we have a distinctly Christian lifestyle and we start to say no to some of that worship, you will stand out and it may actually literally cost you money. That you might lose your job. Our church is not too far from here, but obviously in New Jersey, everybody commutes everywhere. And um, a brother in our church uh, lost his job because of his Christian witness. It happened. Ten years ago, it happened. Right here. And so it's not, it's not like, oh, well, maybe in some kind of... No, it, it could happen right now. And I know you know that there's pressure in the culture to worship their gods. So Jesus says, you think you're rich, you say you've prospered, and you don't need anything. But notice verse 17, right in the middle there. You say that, not realizing... That you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Saved a wretch like me. I guess my friend Johnny Newton got the word from a good source. There's an acknowledgement here where Jesus says, Laodiceans, you've missed it. If you think you don't need me, you've missed it. And not just in conversion. Because in conversion, of course, the first day you become a believer, of course you acknowledge your need for a Savior. If you don't think you need a Savior, you don't come to Christ. But there's a sustained reality that we are continually in need of Jesus' saving work. It's not a, will he finish it? No, we are guaranteed. We were affirmed this morning. It was such a blessing to hear the words of affirmation in Hebrews 4, that we can confidently go before the throne of grace. Why? Because we have this great high priest, our mediator, Jesus Christ. And so we can be confident in his provision, but it's not like we ever outgrow the gospel. It's not like we ever go, well, I'm past the Jesus phase, and now I'm going to be on to the next phase. There is no other phase. And so the Laodicean church, for whatever reason, had thought that they, they did not need to be distinct in their culture, and they were doing just fine as they were, and the evidence was in their bank accounts, that they were rich and prospering. By the way, notice there in verse 17, they don't realize they're wretched, pitiable, poor, huge banking industry in Laodicea, so there's a wink there, uh, blind, huge medical school in Laodicea, there's a wink there, and naked, huge textile industry in Laodicea, there's a wink there. Jesus is like, you've got these businesses, you're worshiping these false gods. He says, but you don't realize how blind you are. You think you got the nicest clothes because you can get, by the way, that was one of the functions of having the textile dye industry in Laodicea, is you could get the best clothes for cheaper. You get a wholesale straight from the source, right? You get the best clothes for cheaper, you were dressed better than anybody else, but you don't realize you're naked, spiritually exposed, and you're poor. Man, your, your 401k was performing awesome. Your, your investments were doing great. You didn't realize you're poor. So there was a, mis, right, a misalignment there. They had failed to discern their true state. I might just encourage you this morning that underestimating our spiritual need always leads us away from Jesus. When we underestimate our spiritual need, it always leads us away from Jesus. And often, maybe always, that is a function of being deceived by unchecked cultural influence. Man, our culture is selling it so hard right now that you, right, you do you. I wish that phrase didn't exist, but there it is. Our culture is saying, you do you. Whatever you want, 
you should be able to do. Whoever you want to be, you should be. Whoever, like, whatever choice you want to make, don't let anybody ever tell you in any way that anything you choose to do could be possibly, potentially conceived of as wrong. And Jesus says, you don't realize how wretched you are. And we'll see here that there's comfort in the gospel, but just for the moment, we just need to, to feel this rebuke. And, and maybe ask the question, are you being influenced by the culture, by our culture, in ways that you're not aware of? You're just not sensitive enough to it. Um, check your Netflix feed, okay? Right? Think about your, your social media intake. Do screen time and see which apps you spend the most time on. Because all those apps are communicating with you. And so that'll tell you. If you spend all your time on your banking apps, that tells you maybe something that you're tempted to love. If you're spending all your time tracking your likes, that might tell you something that you love. If you spend all your time playing games, right, that's going to tell you what you love, entertainment, recreation, right? So maybe just, just check that and say, oh, is, that, is there, are there ways that these cultural influences or these cultural voices are speaking to me and I'm just not aware of it? Because, again, we have to be careful here because the influence of the culture will lead us to underestimate our spiritual need and we'll think, you know, I'm actually fine. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm fine. I, I know I was at the worship service the other night, but I had my fingers crossed. It didn't count. These, this is the danger, right? These people thought they were spiritually mature. They were not. And this is why it's the harshest letter. There's also a, a danger here. If you don't think you need help, you really need help. Like, we all need help. But if you don't think you need help, you need help more than anybody else. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those you know, instances where people do interventions with uh, family members that are struggling with a drug addiction or alcohol addiction. You know, And the first part of an intervention is convincing the person that they actually need help. Because that's part of the, the cyclical lie of addiction is that I don't need help. I've got it under control. Well, here there was basically a spiritual a problem, a spiritual addiction to the, this accommodation and, and compromise with the culture and Jesus is saying here, just at the outset, you need to know, you think you look good, but you don't have any clothes on. And you think you've got it all together, but you are poor and pitiable and wretched. There's also, I think, a danger here in a wealthy culture, which is another reason why this letter may have particular application to our circumstance and our situation. Um, we live in a wealthy culture. It's just a fact, right? So there's always a temptation that comes with wealth. We might mistake that for spiritual maturity. So we just got to be careful there. Our culture is allergic to acknowledging sin. And there are medical professionals who will tell you today it is, it is psychologically unhealthy for you to acknowledge sin. Now, there is a problem if we are simply beating ourselves up over sin without going, getting to the cross. And so I'm going to co cover that in a moment. But I think it's important that we acknowledge if we cannot acknowledge sin for what it is, then we are not following Jesus. That's the confrontation point here. So what should the rich do? Get out your checkbook. Watch verse 18. That's what he says. I counsel you to buy. <laughs> Jesus says, okay, all right, we're, we're poor, we're blind, we're naked, so what do we do, Jesus? I counsel you to buy, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In a town that, that would have taken pride in their banking industry and their textiles and their medical school, what does Jesus say to them? He says, you've got nothing. I have everything. 
So come to me, like Isaiah 55, come to me and buy. Get out the checkbook. It's not the literal checkbook, okay? Get out the checkbook of faith. And you come to me in dependence. And you trust me. And what will you buy from Jesus with faith? You will buy gold refined by fire. What fire? The fire of going to the cross. The, fire that, the purity that, that, Jesus has put on, that Jesus put on display as he walked to the cross. Right? He's got that gold that nobody can touch. You can't find gold that valuable. And he says, I've got this gold. What is that gold? It's forgiveness. It's righteousness in Christ. It's satisfaction forever. It's what everybody really wants. It's what has true, eternal market value. Jesus says, you buy that from me. Okay, banking, right? Banking industry, bankers, come get rich, he says. Buy from me. Or what else do we buy from Jesus? White garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He says, come to me, textile industry, and what are you going to buy from me with faith? You're going to buy white garments. White garments that indicate what? Blamelessness and purity. You look down and you realize, oh man, uh, we're naked, we're exposed, we're broken, like we're, we're, we need help, we need, we need covering. And in Christ, what do, we, what do we receive? White garments. The scriptural analogy there is, of course, they're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, but they're white garments for us because we are made pure in Christ. We could say it this way. In Jesus, you look good. You look good. I'm selling those t-shirts. You can find them online, okay? In Jesus, you look good. Because he gives you, what does he give you? Forgiveness. He covers your shame. So if we were going to just be, oh, uh, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me but barely saved me, like if that's how we sing that song, if we wallow in our sin and shame, then we're not actually receiving the actual truth of the full gospel. That because I was a wretch, but now I am in Christ, I am now covered and clean and blameless. And now, although I could be blamed for so much and I did have much shame outside of Christ, now inside of Christ I am clothed with white garments. My shame is removed. And I can be confident. You know, we, we have so much to be ashamed of because of our sin. But for whatever you're struggling with, that you might, in, in a guarded moment, right, in a, with a, in a, just with a close brother or sister, even maybe with no one, you'd never admit that struggle. You'd never admit that sin. You'd never admit that thought. And you should be ashamed of it, absolutely. But in Christ, guess what you have? You have covering. We're clean. What about medical school? What do they get to buy? Buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus' prescription works. It works. And he says, you come to me. right? Don't go to the gods of your culture. Don't go to yourself. You come to me with faith. That's what you buy. right? You come to me with faith. And what will I provide for you? I will provide for you spiritual sight so that you will accurately be able to discern what you should do in a daily basis. By the way, isn't that what most we want so badly? Jesus, help me navigate this deal at work. Jesus, help me help navigate this deal with my parents or with my kids. Jesus, help me figure this thing out with a political whatever. Help me figure out how to handle it. And Jesus says, listen, you come to me, I give you sight. Spiritual insight. Outside of Christ, we're blind. We are flying blind. And so he says in verse 19, making the application here, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. 
So be zealous and repent. Well, what he's saying here is, what should, if the question is, what should I do? Or I'm feeling a little beat up. He says, listen, don't feel beat up. I'm confronting you because I love you. And like a father to a son, I discipline you because I love you and I want you to, to learn and to grow. And so if you're here, if you're a Laodicean, right, and you're struggling with uh, just blending in with the culture too much and making too much accommodation, too much idolatry, he says, okay, well, I'm reproving you. Yes, I'm disciplining you now, but what should you do? Get after it. Be zealous and repent. If we unpack those two terms, be zealous means just that. Run hard after Jesus. How do we run after Christ today? You stay close to his word and you treat it as his word. Sometimes we're, we're just a little far from our Bibles, right? So get in the word, stay in the word during the week. Don't forsake gathering with the saints. You know, we're kind of in this uh, frame of, of uh, existence in the church here that we're shrugging off the drowsiness from COVID. So it's like we're, kind of, we're finally just kind of waking up out of that nap, okay? And it was an unfortunate nap, all right? Let's call it what it is. So we wake up and let's gather together with the saints and let's be encouraged by one another, all right? To be gracious with one another, to have those conversations we need to have. Sing praises to Jesus. Be zealous by singing praises to Christ. Pray to Him as we've done this morning. Pray at home on your own. Seek the Lord. Be zealous. Run hard after Him. Not so that you can be made clean, because you have already been made clean. Not so that you can earn gold, because you already have the gold. Not so that you can see, cure your sight, but because Jesus has already given us the medicine. And so because we have all this in Christ, we run and we go. And yes, we repent. What is repentance? When sin rears its ugly head in our lives, we confess it as such. This is sin, it is wrong, but we also turn away from it to the Lord. It sounds like this in a family. I was wrong to say that to you in that way. Will you forgive me? I repent. I, I, I don't want to talk like that to you ever again. I want to trust Jesus. I want to speak to you in ways that are encouraging. Will you forgive me? Or at work. Forgive me for being lazy. God calls me to so much more. Will you forgive me? I'm going to work harder. I'm going to turn my back to that laziness. Or to your parents, forgive me for not honoring you in my attitude. I don't want to do that. I want to honor Christ in how I treat you. Or to the Lord, forgive me for loving money more than you, Jesus. I turn my back on that love of money. Help me to steward it well for your glory. Lord, Forgive me for making it my God. You see, passion for Christ trumps payoff from the culture. Jesus says, your passion for me has to trump it. It has to trump payoff from the culture. The affirmation that you're going to get by just blending in, he says, you've got to value passion for me more than that. And yes, it would be easier if you weren't the tallest blade of grass but that's not what I've called you to. Get zealous, repent of your sin, and let's go. Follow me. To where? To glory. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and eat with me. This is banquet language. 
And it's probably not, often we hear this verse quoted in the context of evangelism. It has a backdoor application to evangelism, but really, this Jesus is speaking to a gathered church. And he's saying, wake up. Don't, don't accommodate to the culture. Don't compromise. And so I don't think so much it's about evangelism directly. It's more about just calling the sleepy believer to wake up and repent of, of making those, those, sacrifice, or those, those compromises with the culture. So Jesus is like, I'm right here. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper today. Right? Jesus is like, let's, let's enjoy that together. So hear my voice. Repent, right? And, and I'll come in. Open that door. And I will come in and we will eat together. And we will banquet. We will feast. It will be glorious. But if you're too concerned about making money, if you're too concerned about what other people think of you, if, you, if you're too concerned about how you look, right, and your appearance, Jesus says that you've left that door shut. And maybe, maybe you're not even a believer and he'll spit you out of his mouth. So the warning, you know, abides there, but he says, let's go. Be zealous and repent. Why? So that we can enjoy that, that fellowship with him, that banquet with him. He goes on in verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. There's a beautiful truth. We see it unfold in Revelation 19. But there's a beautiful truth that in Christ, we will reign over the new earth forever under his ultimate authority. And we will, just like we were made to do, by the way, in Genesis, we will be his steward, kings and queens over the earth, reigning. We'll actually get to fulfill that purpose, the, the reason why we were created in the first place. We'll get to fulfill that. Why? Because Jesus has been victorious. Just notice again here, the, the motive, I just want to be really clear. Our motivation for pursuing Christ is not so that we can earn salvation, because we don't earn salvation, do we? No, He's already won the victory. He's already provided for us the covering. We pursue Christ because He's that good and because we belong to Him. And so there's, there's this freedom in this pursuit so we can run after Him, even if the culture laughs at us, even if your family rolls their eyes at you, even if the, the kids at school mock you, even if you lose the job. And even if you had to go to the cross, it would be okay. Passion for Christ has to trump payoff from the culture. And so he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, Jesus knows that all these messages, all these seven letters, that they all have points of application to believers throughout time. And they have specific application to you and to me today. So you need to ask, do I have ears to hear? How does this apply to me? How can I grow in my zeal for the Lord? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need comfort? Passion for, for Christ trumps payoff from the culture. I just want to tell you a little bit more about my friend Johnny Newton. Um, he was 23 years old and working on a slave ship, actually as the captain of a slave ship, Back in 1748, this is the author of Amazing Grace, right? So he was uh, in, the, in the British Empire. He was working in the slave industry, running a slave ship. By the way, you want to talk about an understanding of the brokenness of the world? Imagine if you had firsthand contributed to transatlantic slavery. And you treated people as product and literally loaded them onto your ship as cattle. So he knew he had done it. March 21st of 1748, a massive storm hits the, the area of the Atlantic where he was. It was a two-week-long storm, actually. They were stuck in this thing. He was awoken in the middle of the night. He, he woke up. He writes about it in his journal. He woke up, and he puts his feet down in water. 
Listen, I'm not, I've never been the captain of a ship, but word on the street is that's no bueno when that happens, okay? So if you get up and you put your feet down in water, you got a problem, right? And so he's tr they're trying to get the water out of the ship. They're, they barely survive. It takes them, again, weeks. In the midst of that, he was drawn to Scripture. Why was he drawn to Scripture? I don't know. You know, latent Christian influence in the culture. Maybe his grandma was always on him for reading the Bible, right? Something like that. I don't know. But he was drawn to Scripture. He was desperate, actually. He was drawn to Luke chapter 11, verse 13, where Jesus tells us, If you then who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Spirit to those who ask? And John Newton finally was in a place where he could acknowledge his need. He said, okay, Lord, I'm asking. He was transformed. He said that, and this, I'll quote him directly here, I had satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel and of its exact suitableness to answer all my needs. I stand in need of an almighty Savior and such a one I found described in the New Testament. Fifty years later, thinking about this same moment, he was amazed that such a wretch could not only be spared and pardoned, but then res reserved to the honor of preaching the gospel, which he had blasphemed and renounced. This is wonderful indeed. It is amazing grace. So sweet a sound that saves a wretch like me. When we see the goodness of Christ, when we see his character on display, when we pursue him, right, we realize that whatever the culture is promising you pales in comparison. My prayer is that we would be people whose passion for Christ trumps any payoff from our culture. Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us follow him. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Uh, even as we unpack these verses here in Revelation 3, Lord, there's such encouragement for us. But there's also a warning, and we thank you, Lord, for this warning. We thank you that those you love, you discipline and rebuke. And Lord, perhaps uh, we need to hear, we need to be confronted about making compromises in our faith. Lord, maybe there are ways specifically that we know we should be standing out more at school, at work, at home, and we're not. We're choosing to coast by. We've taken our foot off the gas of following you. We've tapped the brakes. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to see our need, to see it clearly, that without you we are pitiable, we are poor, blind, and naked. But Lord, we praise you for the gospel, for this glorious truth that we can buy from you just by putting our faith in you. We can receive gold of infinite value. That our eyes can be given spiritual sight that we can see and we can be clothed in these pure white robes. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness and grace. We thank you that there's no shame anymore, that there's no more guilt and Lord, we thank you that because of what you have done for us, we are now freed to walk with you. And Lord, for those of us here who need the reminder, Lord, help us to grow in zeal this morning. Passion for you. Lord, as we need to repent, help us repent. And as we do so, Lord, may we do it with full confidence, not in our own ability to earn forgiveness, but in the fact that you have already won the battle. By being the amen, the faithful and true witness who went to the cross for us. Lord, help us to follow you for your glory. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.